Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 125, Bloody Buzluja. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. First, to thank Zhivko Vanchev and Dmitry Kolev for their generous donations, then to thank Tsveta Panayotova for becoming a patron on Patreon. I'll also mention that all these funds together gave me the opportunity this month to go out and buy a whole bunch of materials and some equipment to build my own acoustic panels for my new office, so no more recording in the living room and this little box of an office is no longer very echoey and kind of sounding weird. So I don't know if you can hear a difference, but trust me, if I took away the panels in here, you would definitely hear a difference. So big thank you to all of you who helped me fund that and just generally buying the furnishings and all the equipment for in here. I've now got the best setup I've ever had to make this podcast for you and you all made it possible. So thank you. Now let's get into it. Last time we saw Bulgarian revolutionaries finally spring into action as two Cheti bands crossed the Danube into Ottoman territory only to face almost complete failure before being forced to retreat into Serbia. There, they formed the Second Bulgarian Legion before being forced to flee Serbia by the shifting political winds in Belgrade. Elsewhere, there was real progress on the movement for an independent church uh, for Bulgaria as the patriarch slowly began to concede some points as political pressure mounted from within and from without. All the while, Bulgaria itself saw infrastructure improvements and general economic development. A concession was even granted to begin building the second railway in the country, linking it with Constantinople. Now, this holds the potential for making Bulgaria far more connected with the rest of Europe, far more than it's ever been. And we've already spoken at length about how steamboats on the Danube have brought that trip from Vienna down to just a few days and, well, really revolutionized the amount of products that are coming into Bulgaria and therefore revolutionizing the Bulgarian economy, Bulgarian culture, everything. But a rail link would cut that travel time substantially further and make it really cheaper and more efficient for people and goods to reach Bulgaria. However, big asterisks, as we all know, building a railroad in the Balkans in general is not very easy, and it's not going to happen fast. Now, all this brings us to early 1868. Now, I want to begin here with an interesting story. We spoke last time about how Sultan Abdulaziz became the first Ottoman Sultan to visit Europe, solidifying his position, you know, geopolitically speaking, uh, in terms of diplomacy, and no doubt making it a bit harder for Bulgarian revolutionaries to seek foreign aid. Well, this year, the Empress of France and wife of Napoleon III visited Constantinople herself. The Sultan evidently was showing the Empress around the Dolmanbache Palace on the shore of the Bosphorus and allowed her into the private quarters of his mother, who slapped the French Empress in outrage at this perceived slight. Really, that she would be allowed into her private quarters, which obviously the, uh, I think, 
dowager empress, a dowager queen. I, I can't remember the sultan's mother's title, but yeah, she was very insulted by this kind of breach of her privacy. And as you can imagine, this caused a nice little international incident. No doubt Napoleon III did not appreciate hearing that his wife had been slapped in the Ottoman palace, but evidently things were smoothed over. It didn't cause any kind of lasting ruptures, but it was an interesting little story. But despite this hiccup, we can say, the Ottomans were getting better at foreign policy, no doubt helped by something we talked about a few episodes ago, that they now had a formal foreign service and a foreign ministry. Bulgarians, though, were also traveling abroad in ever greater numbers. On June the 19th, Lubin Karavelov was doing so when he was arrested in the Danubian city of Novi Sad in Austria-Hungary, now in northern Serbia. He was arrested actually on the orders of the Serbian government in connection with the assassination of Prince Michael. You remember, the Serbian prince was recently assassinated. Now, Karavelov, you'll also recall, had been studying in Russia at the University of Moscow for a number of stories, or for a number of years. He had been publishing short stories before moving to Belgrade as a correspondent for a Russian newspaper back in 1867. But why was he arrested? What does this all have to do with that assassination? Well, in short, he did have some connections with the leaders of the Serbian group which carried out the assassination. But he was imprisoned in Budapest for a few months before being released because, well, they couldn't prove the charges in court. He may have known the people who were you know, running the organization that did this, but it seems he had no actual direct involvement. So at this point, he followed so many of his Bulgarian compatriots and moved to Bucharest. Remember, as we've been talking about, you know, for a while, Belgrade was really the hotspot of Bulgarian revolutionary activity, but with the Serbian government really kind of jumping all over the place, it's been quite unstable there. And at various times, the Serbs have wanted to cozy back up to the Ottomans. All this have meant that Bucharest has become the more kind of welcoming place for Bulgarian revolutionaries to do their activities. Plus, it's pretty close to Bulgaria, as we know. Now, shortly after Karavelov was arrested, Levski was also detained and imprisoned himself. He was caught in the Serbian town of Zaychar, just on the Bulgarian border, where he was accused of spreading propaganda, which, okay, fair, he was doing. He spent some months in jail and wrote about his experience some years later, stating, quote, In the summer of 68, I was also imprisoned in Zaychar in the dungeon because I had preached to the Bulgarians there to die for their Bulgarianness, that it was their homeland, end quote. Now, the background of what was going on here was that Zaychar had been ceded to Serbia by the Treaty of Edzirne in 1829, but the town had stronger Bulgarian feelings than Serbian, and so, well, it's no surprise that Serbian authorities were pretty sensitive about Levski riling up the population with ideas about fighting for Bulgaria, and so, well, they cracked down. Something we'll we'll talk about more in the future, but you know the 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 territories right on the Bulgarian-Serbian border, it can get a bit iffy. Like the language they speak there gets to be something kind of in between Bulgarian and Serbian. Uh, if you travel there, you can hear the the way people speak really changes, and the 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 kind of the, the, you'd say the national identification of some of those people can shift. You know, you might have a a village where you know half the population thinks no, I think we're Serbian, half the population thinks no, I think we're Bulgarian. It's something we've talked about happening in Macedonia as well. This is kind of another example of that. But all that is to say, Levski for now is in prison. But even though Levski was obviously occupied elsewhere, 
The next steps of these Chetty attacks on Ottoman-held Bulgaria were still continuing. On July the 6th, 120 well-armed and experienced men led by Haji Dimitar and Stefan Karaja crossed the Danube on a mission to make it into the Staroponina, that is the Balkan mountains, and there set up a revolutionary government which would direct actions against the Ottomans throughout Bulgaria. It was a good place for it because, well, these are mountains, hard to find people in mountains, and they're right in the middle of Bulgaria. So, it's an excellent place to do that, and it's not that far from the Danube to the Balkan Mountains. So, some sources do claim that their aim was actually more to become martyrs and thereby gain the attention of Europe. Maybe it was, you know, ideally uh, uh, goal A, but if not goal B, you know, maybe that's a, a backup goal, but we'll see which one of these they succeeded. Now, the band initially crossed the Danube near Svistov before proceeding south. There's a map on the blog post for this episode where you can follow along. They made it about 40 kilometers into Bulgaria before they met an Ottoman detachment of about 1,000 men. The two sides fought each other in a vineyard before the Cheta managed to escape, making its way another 16 kilometers south to Gorna Lipica, which was where another battle broke out the next day. Still at this point, somehow, despite the long odds of this Cheta band, I mean, obviously they're pretty severely outnumbered. It's just 120 men. And that very first Ottoman detachment they encountered was already a thousand. And we all know there's certainly plenty of more Ottoman soldiers hanging around that can vastly outnumber them. But I mentioned right at the beginning, these were more experienced men, both their leaders and the members of the band had been... You know, Haiduks or, or Cheta, they, they'd participated in these kinds of activities in the past. They knew how to kind of fight a guerrilla war. And that experience showed with the fact that they suffered only one death and two wounded by this point, despite having two kind of running battles. Now, after this second escape from the second encounter with Ottoman soldiers, they moved another 23 kilometers south towards Vishovgrad. At this point, they were still only about two-thirds of the way to the mountains, and as I mentioned, they've already fought two pretty intense battles with Ottoman forces, so it's definitely not easy for them at this point. Now, the next day, they were once again discovered by the Ottomans, and this time the battle did not go as well for them. There was some intense fighting, and Stefan Karaja was wounded and captured. Now, after this battle, only about 58 of the original 100 men managed to escape, so just under half of them. But by this time, they did actually make it into the Balkan Mountains. They reached a peak called Buzluja in the central Staropanina, again, i.e. the Balkan Mountains, which I've been to several times, many of you have. It's famous for another structure that we'll talk about much later in the podcast, but for some reference, it's about 1,432 meters or 4,698 feet high and has a pretty commanding view of everything north and south of the range. I can say from experience, it's not a very hard peak to, to climb. It's far from the highest in Bulgaria and, you know, you don't have to be so physically fit or experienced to, to get up there. So it wasn't like they had some, you know, extremely difficult, grueling uh, hike to get up to this peak. It's, it's not too tough. But still, these 58 men made it to Buzluja, and there, these remaining forces were again soundly defeated, and nearly all of them fell in battle. The band's only remaining leader, Haji Dimitar, himself was wounded, but escaped on a stretcher to the southern foothills of the Staropanina to the village of Svezhen, which 
I was surprised to read. It's a lovely village. I've been there before. A good friend of mine's grandfather's from that village. Uh, if you can visit Svesen, I, I highly recommend staying in the local Rakajinitsa. It's it's just a peaceful, beautiful little village, very isolated in the uh, kind of lower foothills, uh, the Surendgora, as they, they're called, these uh, kind of secondary mountainous foothills that form the Rose Valley. So it's very isolated, very hard to get to. Even today, only one of the Bulgarian cell providers has service in this place. So what you can get from this, Haji Dimitar escaped from Ottoman eyes. However, local villagers there did tend to him, but it was no use. And within about a month, Haji Dimitar died of his wounds. And with them, really, every single one of those 120 men was now dead. So... After the whole ordeal, Stefan Karaja, okay, he wasn't dead yet, but he was sentenced to death and died of his wounds as well before the death sentence could be carried out. Now, looking at it, this whole endeavor had only lasted less than two weeks. And if their mission was to set up this revolutionary government, without a doubt they failed. If their mission was to create martyrs, well, they might have succeeded. I mean, they were all certainly dead, but whether or not this event would catch the attention of the European press, well, that was to be seen. Now, I'll just note that two years later, the bones of Haji Dimitar were reburied in Svezian by the Bishop of Plovdiv himself before they were eventually disinterred and returned to his mother in his native town of Sliven. Now, talking a bit about Haji Dimitar, Christo Botev, who, if you don't know, is an amazing writer. We've talked about him a little bit. He wrote these lines about the man, quote, he who falls while fighting to be free can never die. For him the sky and earth, the trees and beasts shall keen, to him the minstrel song shall rise. End quote. So, again, that band can be seen as, well, a total failure or a possible success, really depending on how you view its objectives. Bulgarians had their martyrs, though I really couldn't find any evidence that this was covered in the foreign press, perhaps a little bit, but not very much. It, it certainly wasn't, uh, you know, blazoned across the headlines around the continent. So overall, not very effective. So this is interesting because in the past, we've seen some of these Cheta actions fail because, well, the people involved weren't as experienced as they, as they maybe should have. Not enough pre-planning was done. This case seems pretty well-planned. And we know the participants had quite a lot of experience. But in the end, this was just, you know, David versus Goliath, 120 men versus Ottoman forces in northern Bulgaria. They, they just didn't stand much of a chance. But without a doubt, the organizers back in Romania were learning from these mistakes and they were trying to change things, to evolve their tactics. But, well... It's still not always that easy. There were plans to move more Cheti down into Bulgaria, but this time they were intercepted by Romanian authorities and stopped because, well, the Romanians weren't as concerned with their uh, kind of standing in the Ottoman Empire as the Serbs were, but they were still concerned enough not to just allow these bands to cross uh, the Danube into Ottoman Bulgaria. And so the Romanians, you know, they're pretty lax in general about these uh, Bulgarian revolutionary activities, but they've got to draw the line somewhere. Now, at this point, in late 1868, the Bulgarian revolutionaries just couldn't muster many more men than the 120 who now lay dead across Bulgaria's soil, and no foreign power was yet willing to back them up. And so, for now, the Chetar are continuing. There's still attempts 
but it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's just, there's just not the resources. There's not the backing that they need. But the church issue is continuing. On the 4th of March, 1868, despite the protests of the Bulgarian people living in Plovdiv, the patriarch there appointed a Greek metropolitan for the city. On the 10th of June, the Ottoman government offered a six-point plan to the patriarchate to resolve the church issue. And a few months later, in October, they put forward yet another proposal for solving the church question. Now, this new proposal even actually points out that the fight has been going on for ages, and it was really about time that this issue was resolved. We kind of start to get a feeling that the Ottomans are sick and tired of talking about this endlessly. They're sick and tired of the fact that the patriarchate blocks any semblance of reform. And yeah, they're, they're, they're finally starting to really push the issue, which is great news for Bulgarians because, well, they need someone on their side for this to happen. So in other words, as you know, pressure on the patriarch is mounting. On the 15th of October, the Bulgarians of Constantinople actually organized and printed a brochure with these government proposals from the Ottomans about how to solve the church question printed on them. And this brochure was eventually circulated in Bulgarian towns and a bit misleadingly presented as a final solution, despite the fact that these are just proposals at this point. But it shows a couple things. It shows that public opinion matters more than ever. It shows that, well, the Bulgarian kind of anti-patriarchate organizers in Constantinople are very aware of this and that they're actually using media to gather their strength and to build up support for their cause. You know, previously, and you know, all the, the history you've covered, that hasn't really been something that Bulgarians have done, but now media is becoming more powerful, more salient, and more used. Now, a month later, November, the Patriarchate sent official objections to the two proposals put forward by the Ottoman government. No surprise there. And in response, a suggestion was made for another church assembly to gather and resolve the issue. Uh, no doubt the, the Sultan at this point is getting quite annoyed. It's just rejections and proposals for assemblies and, you know, time-wasting activities on all sides. So the issue is going all around and around and around, and all sides are getting pretty fed up with it. Now, by the final days of 1868, the Metropolitan of Vidin gave a liturgy in which the name of the patriarch was not mentioned, so Vidin now joined the ranks of kind of church areas and church officials who had, in their own way, declared independence from the patriarchate, again, adding more and more pressure. But as 1868 drew to a close, it was clear that that issue was not yet going to be resolved. Now, the winter months, 1868 to 69, saw Vasilevsky, who had been freed from Serbian prison, go on a grand tour of Bulgarian lands. Well, as grand as a tour can be when you're wanted by the authorities and traveling in secret. He got onto a Danube steamer in Romania and traveled to Constantinople before making his way back to Romania overland through Bulgaria, visiting sympathetic locals and establishing connections along the way in places like Plovdiv, Perushtica, Karlovo, Sopot, Kazanluk, Sliven, Tornovo, Lovech, Pleven, Nikopol, and others. Now, besides establishing these links, Levski aimed at gaining some real understanding of the state of Bulgaria and the state of Bulgarians. In doing so, Levski was addressing one of the main limitations of the revolutionary movements that we've discussed, their disconnect from regular people. Clearly, for now, though, there's a lot more work to be done, and... Yeah, the, the revolutionary activity that Levski is doing is nothing more than like a, a, 
you could say kind of a, a foundation. You know, a foundation is incredibly important, but it's definitely not a house. You know, it's not sufficient. But Levski is working hard. And by the end of his trip, he was back in Bucharest where he made contact with Lubin Karavelov, who had also been freed, and was at this point the editor of the newspaper Fatherland, based in Bucharest. So now, let's kind of wrap up the events of 1868. Hristo Botev's father, Botio Petkov, published a textbook on world geography. The first brewery opened in Bulgaria, or at least that's what some of my sources said. Other sources mention 1876 is the first commercial brewery. It's a bit unclear, but what is clear is that small-scale beer production is going on, largely owing to Czech and Hungarian exiles living in Bulgaria following the 1848 revolution. So beer, which is now the alcohol of choice in Bulgaria, back then probably rakia was the alcohol of choice, but beer is becoming more prominent. Lastly, 1868 saw the Ottoman government create a higher court with two components for civil and criminal law. The person administering it had a ministerial rank and its members were appointed by the sultan. Now, this is important because it's another example of how the Ottoman legal system and broader bureaucracy are evolving more along European lines as a part of the ongoing Tanzimat reforms. So, you now have something almost like a a dualistic Supreme Court for the Ottomans. So, it's also good to know for Bulgarians potentially facing legal troubles, uh, revolutionaries and things, that the Ottoman legal system is becoming more formal and structured. Now, 1869 kicked off with an international conference in Paris concerning the status of Crete. Remember, recently there was a big anti-Ottoman revolt there, which had been defeated. Members of the Bulgarian Virtuous Society used this forum to convey to the representatives of the great powers their political program concerning the options for the solving of the Bulgarian question. In it, they put forth the idea of potentially creating a dual Bulgarian-Turkish kingdom, and within it, the Bulgarians would have autonomy. Now, needless to say, this proposal was not well-received by many of the more revolutionarily inclined Bulgarian emigres, as we've seen various Bulgarian organizations are advocating radically different ideas about the the future of Bulgaria. Some want a dual state with the Ottomans, like that which was just proposed. Others want a dual state with the Serbs. Some want an independent republic. Others want an independent kingdom. Some want a Danubian or a Balkan federation. And all these different proposals are all kind of milling about. And For now, this infighting doesn't appear to be having a substantial impact on the ability of these factions to really advocate for their proposals. I mean, frankly, Bulgarian independence in this moment doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. And so these disagreements are at this point kind of pro forma, right? They're, They're not really impacting things on the ground. But there's no doubt that there are really serious disagreements and that once Bulgaria gets closer to independence, these are going to become important. So We're noting them now because they're really starting to pop up. And no doubt from the European great powers perspective, you know, some European diplomat might just hear from the virtuous society this and think, oh, that's what the Bulgarians want, you know, assuming that this one organization speaks for the whole. And so I think it's important to note that these ideas are going around. Now, Because governments and organizations are being established left and right, during the spring of 1869, Ivan Kasabov published Lubin Garavel's political program in his newspaper before publishing a proclamation for a group calling itself the Temporary Government in the Balkans, which was written by Kasabov himself. So we've got yet another organization being formed. But 
it's not really quite a new one. I mean, this is essentially taking over uh, responsibility for the Bulgarian Internal Revolutionary Committee and the people who have just sent the Chetas from Romania. It's it's sort of just a new face for that group, and it's designed to give it a little bit more, let's say, authority uh, in front of Bulgarian people. And with that in mind, Levski, with copies of this proclamation, returned to Bulgaria. Now remember, he had already finished his first tour of Bulgarian lands in February, and by May 1st, he was crossing the Danube yet again to begin another tour of the country. This time, he was spreading the proclamation Kasabov had just published and shifting from a focus on studying the current state of Bulgarian lands to actively calling for the Bulgarian population to take part in the fight to free themselves from foreign political dominance. The proclamation was stamped with a seal from the temporary government, giving Levski a greater air of legitimacy. And, you know, for the average Bulgarian, probably not peasant, but, you know, some local notable, seeing this official stamp and something called the temporary government of the Balkans, it all sounds very legitimate. It makes the Bulgarian revolutionaries honestly sound more powerful and organized than they probably were. But that kind of propaganda or whatever you want to call it, that's powerful stuff and it's important. And it apparently did have an effect and helped Levski in his mission. So using this proclamation and the legitimacy it gave him, Levski formed the first revolutionary committees on this tour in places like Lovech, Pleven, Karlovo, Sopot, and others. And by August, he was safely back in Bucharest. Now by the fall of this year, Levski, Karavelov, and a group of their followers formed something I just mentioned, the Bulgarian Revolutionary Central Committee, or BRZK in Bulgarian, in Bucharest. So this is kind of the successor of uh, Rakovsky's activities, right? There were a couple different organizations involved there. This is now kind of the new main Bulgarian revolutionary group. Now, the goal of the BRCC was to free Bulgaria through an uprising and to address the issues which had led to the failure of the Second Bulgarian Legion and those Cheta attacks into Ottoman territory. And their kind of solution to these failures was to centralize command. So in many ways, this organization marked the completion of the kind of movement, the transference of the mantle of revolution from Rakovsky to Levski and Karavelov. Now, shortly after all this, Karavelov published the first issue of his newspaper, Freedom, listing its goals as protecting Bulgarian interests and showing the Bulgarian people the path that they should take to advance morally and reach political independence. With Levski's successfully founding so many secret committees, with the foundation of this new central secret organization, many lessons were being learned from past failures, and the Bulgarian revolutionary movement was undoubtedly entering a new and hopefully more effective phase. Meanwhile, Bulgaria was also seeing the rapid foundation of a great many women's societies across the region. Between May 1869 and May 1870, women's societies were founded in Gabrovo, Braila, Pazarjik, Ruse, Tulce, Tornovo, Kazanluk, and Gabrovo. And in Khaskovo, Rachel Doshanova and Petr Perkovsky founded the Bulgarian National Women's Society. So, I don't quite know why it was at this time. There hasn't really been a whole lot of these women's societies around, but suddenly in this you know 12 to 18 month period, they just exploded everywhere. And I also couldn't find many details about the activities of these societies, but my best guess is that they're 
definitely more on the conservative side. They're not going to be probably advocating for something like women's rights, but more trying to kind of participate in bettering their community, something like this. Uh, Just from the general sense of how you know, local organizations, places like reading rooms are are kind of acting within Bulgarian society at this time. Uh, I think that's how you should probably think about these societies. But you're going to get some variants. They're each independent, so they're not all going to be identical. Now, schools were also opening at a fairly rapid pace. 1869 saw the opening of a Bulgarian school in Galetz, in Bucharest, Ohrid, and Thessaloniki. This year, the Ottoman government also passed the most comprehensive education law in its history, finally creating a uniform system throughout the whole empire while attempting to give it the resources that it would require. Now, this will take quite some time to have any real effect, and in Bulgaria, we can just say events will conspire to prevent this from ever really affecting Bulgaria. But again, the Ottomans are Europeanizing, if you want to use that word, and kind of making their bureaucracy and their institutions more formal and more effective. Which, as we know, is a bit of a blessing and a curse for Bulgarians. Sometimes those more effective organizations, you know, bring things like better infrastructure. Other times they allow the Ottoman authorities to better crack down on Bulgarians. So you can see it that way. Now, on a side note and a lighter note, this year also saw the revolutionary teacher Bachokiro form a youth center in a village called Selsky Selskolubov. So the youth center was called Village Love, which my wife and I agree is kind of hilarious. But back to serious matters. 1869 also saw the death of one of the leaders of the Ottoman Tanzimat reforms. As Misha Glennie put it, quote, Matters came to a head after the death of Faud in 1869 and Ali two years later. Midhat thus assumed the mantle of the Tanzimat. Unfortunately, Mithat was a relative outsider, enjoying much less influence in Istanbul than his predecessors. Abdulaziz was tiring of the Tanzimat, particularly as it affected his ability to spend vast sums of money on luxuries. Within two years, all the good work of the Tanzimat Chalar began to unravel. End quote. So to sum that up, between 1869 and 1871, the political movement behind the past few decades of Tanzimat reforms is going to start falling apart, falling apart. Remember, these reforms, much like what I just mentioned, have made Bulgaria more prosperous through modernization, but also modernized state structures which are used to repress Bulgarians. So Tanzimat has been a bit of a double-edged sword, but the big question about the end of the Tanzimat movement is really What's going to replace it? Politics within the Ottoman Empire are shifting, and right now, even as the Tanzimat is starting to fade out, it's still unclear which faction is going to successfully kind of rise up and take the mantle of power. But for now, many groups are jockeying for positions. In the meantime, as always, there are more developments on the church issue. In February 1869, the Ottoman government created a mixed Bulgarian-Greek commission, three of each, which was tasked to prepare a final solution for the Bulgarian church question. Grand Vizier Ali Pasha oversaw the meetings, and they continued into June. But again, remember, the Ottomans are quite aware of the growing power of the Bulgarian revolutionaries, and they are both tired of this being an ongoing issue and seemingly just never going away, but the Ottomans also see the resolution of the church issue and the granting of the Bulgarians of a, a kind of an independent church as a way to shore up their own position and take away a point of contention from the Bulgarian revolutionaries. So there's some interesting chess going on here. 
But as those negotiations continued, Bulgarians continued to take action. In May, during the Saint Saint Kiro Metodi holiday, at a special organized event for Metropolitan Panaret Pogonianski, he consecrated a chapel that was created on the second floor of a Bulgarian school in Bucharest. During the following years, it would begin to function as effectively an independent Bulgarian church. In September, the Skopje Exarchate filed a plea to a church body in the city to have the head of the Vilayet and the Grand Vizier, and basically in it, it announced that the Eparchate renounced the Patriarchate and recognized the Bulgarian church in Constantinople. So all that is to say, yeah, the Skopje Exarchate also kind of declared its independence. In December, a church in the village of Galetinovo held an assembly where representatives of nearby municipalities also decided to break ties with the Patriarchate. Now, I said it many times before, but I really mean it. The church issue is really coming more and more to a head. More of these groups are declaring independence. More foreign powers, as well as Ottoman government officials, are putting severe pressure on the Patriarchate to finally find a solution. But that solution will have to wait till next time. Now, As we're finishing up the decade of the 1860s, I want to finish off today with a small anecdote from Mary Newberger's book, Balkan Smoke, about British diplomats, Stanislas St. Clair and Charles Brophy, who were traveling around Bulgaria during that decade. I mentioned in a previous episode how travelers to Bulgaria often promoted the narrative of innocent Bulgarians being ruthlessly oppressed by the Turks. But these British diplomats promoted a very different narrative. They wrote that the Christian peasant in Bulgaria was, quote, morally and physically degraded and idly lies dead drunk upon a dung heap, end quote, adding that they were, quote, better off under Ottoman rule, end quote. Now, these two men are not exactly subtle in their writings. That's not some pretty extreme and, and harsh language. But it's important to be familiar with these narratives because, again, Foreign newspapers, foreign diplomatic offices, all these are becoming ever more important as the status of Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire becomes somewhat dependent on what those foreign powers and the foreign people living in them think. Now, St. Clair and Brophy weren't always so generous to the Ottomans. They also wrote that, quote, the Zapitiks, the Ottoman police, preferred their coffee and cigarettes at their guardhouse to scouring the countryside in search of brigands, end quote. So, there was criticism all over the place from them. I think maybe they were just uh, sharp writers with uh, without really much care to who read what they th- who read what they wrote or who thought about it. But overall, I think this approach to the Bulgarians and Ottomans can be summarized as the Christian peasant is a drunk, which explains how he can be a Christian living in Europe but still not really be European. The Ottomans are lazy, but at least they're sober. So, yeah, we've discussed all these what all these foreigners thought about the Ottoman Empire, some fervently pro-Ottoman, some fervently anti-Ottoman. And many, like these two diplomats, seem to think that the whole region isn't very noteworthy or important either way, certainly not worthy of getting involved in. And again, as Bulgaria enters the decade of the 1870s, convincing men like this that the Bulgarian cause is worth fighting for and supporting has become more important than ever. Next time we'll finally see the church issue resolved, and yet another European war is going to dramatically shift the balance of power and have profound effects on Bulgaria's future. So don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. The Bulgarian language version of the podcast is still on hold because of the pandemic, but hopefully 
Well, sometime next year, we'll get that up and running again. But you can always find great new stuff at bghistorypodcast.com. And the subreddit is also linked in the episode description. So I'll see you there.